Joe Watkins and Travis Castle coming to you live from the Yes I Rent studios. Here's the new song. We got the truth. We got the truth. We got the big truths of small business. Sponsored by Yes I Rent. Yes I Rent. Yes I Rent Property Management. We place good tents and collect your rent. Maintain your properties and account for it. Truths. We got the truths. We got the big truths of small business. Sponsored by SI Rent. Hey, what's up, Travis? Joe. Man, that was live. <laughs> Listen, we got a new interviewee today. My attorney, my brother, my great friend, Mark Britton, on the line via telephone. Mark, how you doing, man? Joe, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on the show today. Oh, man, we're excited about it, man. I, I, think, I think you very well may be the guy that's revealing more truths in a, in a lifespan of a, of a business than, than anybody <laughs> I know. Well, Joe, I just want to start the show by saying one truth, and that is that's about the cheesiest song I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I hope you don't send that to the federal government for a copyright, because they'll probably send the, the Army down to arrest you. Hey, Mark, Mark, are you saying you want to hear it again? Joe, fire it up again. <laughs> we got the truth. I tell you what, I'll give you $100 if I don't have to hear it again. How about that? Wow, okay. Well, first first question for you. We're not getting billed for this, are we, Mark? I just want to be sure, because it's usually an hour podcast. Not directly. But I, I can do it in five minutes if we're getting billed. Not directly. We're just going to stick it to you when you don't know it's coming. <laughs> oh, sounds good. That's good stuff. Well, look, I want to make a, a small introduction uh, before uh, Mark uh, kind of tells us uh, a little bit about himself. Uh, so, so Mark and I met, I don't know, a good – 10 years ago, kind of before the first real estate crash here that we experienced in the last 10 years, kind of really leading into that crash when I was flipping homes and I was looking for a, a good attorney to do some closings nearby. And then we were introduced by um, a lender, a nearby lender. And from there, we developed a, a great business, business relationship around closing all these houses that we were flipping. And I got to really uh, I don't know. He brought me into the fold, um, into sort of the McDonough real estate guys and, and gals that uh, were the who's who in our area, and uh, and just and just brought me in as, as almost like a family member, and we became really good friends, and we talked more about that. But that's that's how I know Mark. He was a real estate, uh, traditionally a real estate attorney back then. He'll tell you his story post that. But uh, I'm just <clears throat> glad that you're on the. On the air today, and uh, Mark, if you could kind of give the audience a little, you know, brief background of who you are, your upbringing, your story, your family, so we can get some kind of context here of who you are. Well, Joe, I, I was kind of a, a typical example of middle-class America, born in 1962, uh, raised in Decatur, Georgia, you know, grew up in the W.D. Farmer Brick Ranch house, you know, uh, the, the perspective of my world was my school, my church, my neighborhood. I didn't have any um, preconceived notions or thought, thoughts about county lines or cities or how they interacted with each other. I was just a kid in middle-class America. And, um, yep. 
went to uh, high school and uh, then um, had a good good high school experience. Um, you know, loved by my family tremendously. Um, went to Georgia State University, got a business degree. Went on to Cumberland Law School in Birmingham, Alabama, part of Samford University, um, and got a law degree. And then, and I say Samford University, when, usually when I say that, people pop up with this big, bright smile and say, oh, Stanford? You went to Stanford? I, then I have to hang my head and say, no, no. I went to Samford with S-A-M. Right, right, right. And uh, so anyway, but Samford is a great school. I, I probably couldn't get into it today. Um, and then I came to Henry County in 1987, and I went to work for a general practice law firm. And then back in those days, that was right about the time that um, the there was a lot of development going on in Henry County. Subdivisions were being developed. Houses were being sold. New homes. Builders were coming in from uh, all over the place. And I had a great opportunity to meet a lot of people, um, develop a lot of friendships. And um, I, I can... A lot of the clients that I have today, I can trace them back to my early days in the late 1980s of um, doing my, you know, learning my way in the law. And um, as my practice evolved, it 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 really got filled up with doing real estate deals, residential, and then commercial deals, you know, hotels and convenience stores, um, apartment buildings. And so, anyway, I always enjoyed it because when you're in a deal. You know, everybody walks away happy with what they want. The right. seller wanted to sell, the buyer wanted to buy, the bank wanted to loan the money, and, and it was overall, it was a good experience. It wasn't a, a, what you think of typical lawyering uh, in terms of, you know, somebody's got to beat somebody. I, I, right. That wasn't part of my personality. So right. anyway, I just kind of took it from there. And that was, uh, that was all, that practice started, was it was in sort of Stockbridge McDonough area, right? Yeah, it was the, kind of the flagship law firm in, in, in McDonough, Georgia. Okay. Been, been there the longest and had a lot of history. And um, so we had a lot of great relationships with everybody in town. And the beautiful part about being with that group was that they were so well-known and well-respected that I kind of had instant credibility everywhere I went, even though I didn't deserve it. <laughs> right. I, could, I, I could go to the um, – what was so funny is it was such a small town that my wife would go to the Phillips 66 station on Town Square in McDonough and um, get the gas filled up with uh, the car filled up with gas. And the boys who ran the station said, no, you're not going to pay. We're going to make your husband pay when he comes by here. <laughs> <laughs> That's how small the town was. Well, so, um, I told you, and you probably remember this, but I actually did was introduced to Mark Britton uh, in his early career. We just didn't get to know each other. When I paid him about six hundred ninety nine dollars to open up an LLC dock for wow. me back in the nine, that, early nineties, golly, yeah. that seems a little little pricey. Oh, right I know. Now. It's just, I mean, it's, <laughs> look, I helped pay his mortgage. Man, I mean, Mark, what, what all was involved with that? I mean, that's <laughs> that's, that's well. I basically awesome. had to tell my secretary to do it. That's about. You know, <laughs> oh, okay. All right. That was well. my involvement. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I remember. I was like, man, you know, this 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 guy. I mean, he's good looking. He's got a lot of hair. He's young. He's he's sitting at a big board table. I guess I'm paying for all that. <laughs> did you feel good about it though? You felt good I mean, about you it, know, right? I, I had a company. Yeah. I thought I did something. Yeah. So, uh, 
So, you, so you're in your career uh, at this law firm. Meanwhile, you 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 also are getting you know you got married and you start to have some kids. Yep. And uh, in terms of the, because at some point you became a, a major partner in this firm. How you know when did that happen? How long did that take? How did that how did that occur? Was it just somebody come to you saying, hey? You're doing a great job. You want to be a partner, or is it you pushing on that on the other side? How did all that? Come yeah, it out? was just growing up in the you know the right place at the right time. And you mentioned that I got married. I I married um, a girl who I, I knew in high school, and she was a flight attendant for Delta Airlines. And she said, um, she said, um, well, you know, if you marry me, you know, you can fly free. And you know that <laughs> that turned out to be an expensive situation. <laughs> That's a lifetime of expenses there. Um, she, uh, we had four children and we're still happily married to this day. We've been married 31 years and, uh, she's a terrific girl. And I just have a very happy family raised all four daughters here in Henry County and, um, public school system. And, um, but yeah, the goal was back in those days to take the business and that we had just gushing in and just build the law firm to be the best that it could be. And because there wasn't a large firm in the community, there were, the firms were two and three, you know, lawyer firms with, you know, th- you know, two or three secretaries. And we grew our firm to right at, I want to say over a hundred people, um, probably 20, you know, 15 to 20 lawyers and about 80 support staff. And, um, it just, we just added on and added on over the years because we had so much business and that's because of a good economy. Right. And, um, you know, when you, when you produce results, you know, in a law firm, you know, when you have a good client making things happen, then other legal business comes as a result of that. Right. The, um, you know, the typical scenario was that the developer comes in you know, he wants the property rezoned. You help him with that. Uh, you've got to get a development loan to develop the subdivision, so you help him with that. You refer him to your other client who is a bank, so you have good relationships there. Then when it's time to uh, sell the lots, then the builder comes in. You do the closings for that. You refer him to uh, lenders who provide construction loans. And by the way, this is another client of mine who does sheetrock work, and here's one that does electrical work. And Here's one who does plumbing. You ought to, you know, so it's all, it was just one development family. And it just, it just went on and on. And um, it's, you know, it, it grew to, to a large size. And I tell people that we had many, many years of a great economy. Um, and um, I rode the wave of that good economy all the way to the scene of the accident, which is the, <laughs> the the scene of the accident is the recession of 2008, which just totally devastated um, everybody that I knew and, and, and the whole community. It was like it was like uh, Sherman had come through Georgia and burned everything again, and um, it affected so many people in so many ways. But um, I remember back in the early 1990s, there you know, there was talk of a recession in the United States, mm-hmm. and I remember standing in my office saying. What is a recession? I have no idea what a recession is because we were so busy in Henry County. There was there was so much um, there was so much of a boom going on in terms of building and development that you know we didn't even know what a recession was. Got to ask you, Mark, just backing up a little bit. Coming out of college, uh, you so you've got a law degree. Why? I mean, 
did you know somebody that was an attorney working in real estate? Did you have any connections? What, what was the path from you getting the diploma to, uh, you know, a lot of different areas of law? So why, why real estate? Well, real estate is something that I fell naturally into, but getting the law degree was, I had, um, I had two people in my life who were very influential and one of them was an attorney and one of them was a pastor. And they both encouraged me to study hard, make good grades, and to choose a profession that I that I wanted to do. Well, when I I, I almost became a minister, um, but I just did not feel the call to do that. Everybody was telling me, "Well, yeah, you need to be a minister. You need to be a minister." Well, I didn't really feel it. Um, I felt like um, you know that was not going to be a fit, but that if I went to law school, maybe I could get a feather in my cap in whatever company I worked for, I could get the next promotion because I had the law degree. I didn't really know if I was going to practice law. So through the encouragement of, you know, people who were, you know, highly influenced, you know, influential in my life, um, I went to law school and within three weeks of being in law school, it was like a great big white light bulb turned on in my life. And I said, this is what I have always wondered about. This is what I've always been curious about what makes a contract enforceable what can they do to you if you don't honor the contract and i'm learning all this stuff and i'm excited for the first time in my life i'm excited to learn what i'm learning it's not boring it's not doldrums it's like wow this is this is interesting and so i was motivated to do it and um and i i just knew then after three weeks of being in law school that I did want to practice law. And so when I graduated from law school, I just found this law firm in McDonough, Georgia, who um, was the senior partner of the firm, was um, a client of my mother's CPA. So uh, my mother's CPA um, was also the CPA of the senior partner of this firm. And he said, hey, you ought to call this guy down there in McDonough. They're, they got a really healthy practice. And they need help, and you ought to you ought to go down there and talk to them. So I did, and, and it worked out. We hit it off, and, and a lot of my friends kind of thought it was kind of they kind of looked down on me. So you're going to a little bitty town to practice law. You're going south go to Atlanta of the perimeter, firm, yeah. <laughs> and, you know. Why don't you go, you know, downtown and get with the prestigious law firm? And you know, I just said, man, this is a golden opportunity because you know you're on the ground floor of something small. You can grow it into something big, and I just saw it as you know, and back in those days, law firm positions, you know, I was in the top third of my class, but, you know, if you weren't in the top 10% of your class, you know, positions were not that easy to get. So you had to really take what you could get and make the best of it, which is what I tried to do. I got a couple couple points to make to, uh, out of what you just said. I think it's interesting is you you went down a field, through a, a field of study that, you know, wasn't you were encouraged to do, but you did some, you did some, uh, call it testing, uh, to learn where it is you best fit inside of that, or even to use that somewhere else you didn't know at the time. But I think this is a, a this is a, a something that everybody should think about is, is, you know, don't be so rushed to go land firmly in what you think that you want to do when you haven't really tested anything so you get out there you start testing you something comes across 
that that is a, that becomes a an intrigue and a passion and something that gets you excited then you take that that opportunity and go down that road and i think that's that has been one of the, one of the keys to your successes uh is that you you were doing something that you loved and it came it, you know it comes through it came through back then when i first met you um and then the other the other part of that is i didn't want to gloss over the fact that that the success of what you're doing is strictly out of a, a great marketplace that provided the opportunity to do well, but, but you still have to, to take advantage of that opportunity. You have to earn your place and, 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 and you building relationships, relationships matter to you. Uh, it, yeah. every, everybody's not a transaction. Everything going on around you is a relationship. And, um, you know, you, you have demonstrated that uh, so many times over the years. I'll tell a quick story uh, to our audience here. Uh, probably, you know, six months ago, you know, I get a, a, a strange text from a guy I don't know that someone wants to, uh, I need to come measure you for, for, for a friend. And this is me getting a text, uh, and I don't know who this is, and I'm, I'm like, well, what is this? What friend? And the guy says, Mark Britton, on the text. So I immediately pick up the phone. I've got some interest and intrigue of what's going on here. Long story short, out of nowhere, Mark just decides to, to, to get me fitted for a custom uh, tailored jacket, shirt, and pants. Uh, and I don't know that the... the this is just an exemplary of who you are and what I think has built your business is that you care for people. You think about people, you consider people. And so without any, without anything in return, I just, I just get this, this suit, which Mark knows I never would buy on my own. Not that I couldn't afford one. I just wouldn't do it. He says I don't have enough class to do it. So he's going to class me up well, I mean, anyway. Walmart doesn't custom fit yeah, suits, Walmart, best I Yeah, remember. Walmart, my, my, my suits apparently didn't fit very well, or or maybe there weren't any at all. That's but, what uh, I told you. Those clothes you're wearing are not going to come back in style. You need to give it up <laughs> and move on with your life. Perseverance, right, Joe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> but I, that, that's just a, an example of, I think, what, you use that skill, that ability to, to connect with people, build relationships, find value in relationships, and that's, that's how you actually took advantage of the opportunity. The opportunity was the market, but you took advantage of the opportunity that way, and I think that's an important point. And you know, Joe, the other side of that, I'm, I'm, I appreciate you saying that, but the other side of that is that guy who came and fitted you for those clothes has been fitting my clothes for about 28 years. And he's been fitting clothes of many of my friends. And, you know, he went through hard times like everybody else did in the recession. And so, you know, he he's the last guy that you call when you're struggling in a recession. And so, right. you know, it helped him too. And so, yeah. you know, it helped a lot of people. And it was a good joke that I can have on you that, you know, that you, <laughs> you know you got a lot of class, but it's all tourist. You don't know how to dress. You know? And, um, but you got my, you know, and I knew that you would, you know, once you wear those clothes, you're going to, you're going to want to buy from him again. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I'll... And so it's going to, you know, things like that help a lot of people, you know? Well, we all need to nudge at times, uh, and, and that's important to note. So you, you mentioned earlier that, I'm not exactly sure how you phrase it, but we, we had a crash that occurred. 
Yeah. And you're in an industry that was right in the heart of it. And I think this is where the story gets interesting. It gets uh, difficult. Um, th- this is a this is a classic st- story of of uh, you know having to conquer out of a depression and, and, and turn things in a whole different direction. And um, go into a little bit of that. I mean, what, what what were you seeing? What was happening? What were you getting into that maybe you, you that hurt you that you wish you didn't? I mean, I'll, just to start sharing kind of from that perspective, uh, what, what was going on? Yeah, Joe, that was I was kind of the poster child of everything that could have gone wrong. I mean, it was just it was a disaster. Everything that I was into in terms of investments and career and how to earn income and risks that I had taken um, was related to the construction. And development industry, and I didn't realize it at the time. I never thought once about, um, you know, having um, everything that I had invested in related to, in some way, the construction industry. But mm-hmm. it, whether it was or not, the crash of 2008 was so severe that it would have affected um, me, whether it, I, everything I had was construction related or not. I mean, I had this thriving um, real estate practice. Um, and of course, when, you know, in 2005, you know, everybody coming through my office was making money on deals and new businesses were forming. And so I, you know, I invested in um, other businesses that were related to the construction industry, like off road diesel petroleum business, um, a house building business, a um, rental house portfolio business, um, a number of things. And I, um, I had taken my law practice in terms of real estate about as far as it could go because there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't any, it was diminishing return. If I worked harder doing that, I'm not going to really make the profits that I should just because of the, you know, the way the law firm agreement was written and the way that uh, the whole, you know, volume, you know, right. was set up in terms of, you know, how the money was divided. So, I tried to do other things to um, have multiple sources of income. And when um, when the recession hit, and it was obvious something happened that is never really we've never really seen before in modern history, and that is the value of real estate drops way way below the loan that you have on the property. Even if you have a seventy percent loan on the property, and the value of the real estate tanks then the bank wants you to write them a check for the difference of the fair market value and the loan balance. So you may have a $100,000 property, a $70,000 loan, think that you have $30,000 equity, but when the market turns and the value drops to $50,000, you still owe 70, the bank wants you to write them a check for $20,000. So that was the scenario of what we were into. And so, um, Builders couldn't sell their houses. Developers couldn't sell their lots. The banks had to do something. The banks are being dictated by their uh, their governing authorities, either the you know Georgia State Banking Department or the OCC or the um, FDIC or whatever. There's multiple governing authorities for different banks, and so their bank their governing authorities pressure them, and so it was just a disaster. Um, so what happened is I started watching all of my clients and my friends drop like flies. My builders went out of business. My developers went under. My banks 
that I had represented and loved so much uh, were taken over by the FDIC, um, given away. It was a it was a chaotic chaotic environment. Subcontractors doing you know sheetrock, electrical, plumbing. There's no work anywhere. Real estate agents have nothing to sell. I see my real estate agent friends out bartending. I see prominent bank presidents who are who have spent their entire career uh, in this prestigious light of being a banker, all of a sudden, you know, trying to sell real estate or do investments and, you know, manage property. I mean, it was just ugly. It was ugly. Everybody was hurting. Hmm. And, um, and I lost everything. And, um, I thought I was, you know, I thought I was the king of the mountain, but I actually was the fool on the hill. (laughs) Do you think that, that, because you were representing so many clients that were just rolling it, that that was sort of the draw that, that you, cause you, you started to diversify into these other things. Do you think, do you think in hindsight, would you have been better off if you just kept on doing closings or what, what, what's your thought around? Probably so. What, what took me down was the side deals. If I had just not gotten into the side deals and the side businesses, I would have been fine. You know, but that had, I, I, I mean, think I would have been fine. Here, here's the scenario. Let me, here's a scenario of what happened. I built a nice class A um, office building with two or three partners. We rent part of that space to a bank. Okay. We rent another part of that space to an insurance company. We rent another part of that space to the law firm. Okay. So now the economy goes, you know, south. FDIC takes over the bank, who is my tenant, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, they give the bank and all the bank's assets to another bank under a law share agreement, which is a, a tragedy. The shareholders of that bank are out their money. Right. The FDIC says, we're canceling the lease. I said, you can't cancel the lease. I said, you know, I've got a I got a 15 year lease. You know, the bank is supposed to pay the lease, and whoever took over that bank needs to pay that lease. FDIC said no, no. Under the law, we have the right to cancel the lease, and we're canceling the lease. Hmm. Well, I thought, well, that's interesting because I can't. I I owe another bank that I borrowed the money from to build this building with. We only had a maybe a 60 percent loan to value ratio on that on that loan, and I can't go to the bank that loaned me the money to build the building and say, hey, um, the FDIC canceled the lease on this bank tenant that I had. You're going to have to help me out. And I can't do that. They they laugh at you. So, you know, they, you know, so when your cash flow is not coming in and you don't have the money to pay the note, then you got to work something out quickly. And you got to sell at a discount. You got to get out of it because you don't want to get stuck with, you know, multi-million dollars worth of debt. And um, so it just, you know, the advantage was clearly with the the FDIC. The advantage is with the government, and the guy who took the risk is the you know is the guy who who you know gets imploded yeah, they, in the they, whole situation. Uh, they always have the trump card. Uh, uh, they yeah. all they always can do the unexpected, and they're kind of doing that a little bit now here in the COVID nineteen crisis. I mean, they they take it upon themselves to introduce themselves. You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna judge what they're doing right now. What I, what I, what I am gonna say is, 
they they take it upon themselves to introduce themselves in the free market and the unintended consequences out of that can be pretty pretty severe and they did that well i agree with you and Mm. you know you're absolutely right and another residual problem that comes from that joe is that when you're in a deal like i just described with the building and the bank going under and all that kind of stuff your partners and co-investors who are in that deal with you together they start maneuvering for themselves Mm. they no longer have the group think going on they're they're like how can i get (laughs) my money out of this Mm. even if it's at the expense of the other investors so it just creates this disastrous and then what happens is feelings get hurt and relationships get broken and you know when money you know when money's involved, people get, you know, they, their true colors come out when, when times of trouble come around. And, um, you know, when there's money involved, people get funny. And then it just one negative thing begets another negative thing, you know, so. So, Mark. But it this, was a crash and burn for sure. This, this question comes out of, so I, I was in real estate at that time and, and feel the pain, can, can, can feel the pain hearing you talk about it, man. Um, and what you did is, is super common with uh, many other closing attorneys. That, that story you just told, maybe not the details, but the spirit of it is very similar. You got guys coming into your building, you got developers, you're often in very early in the deal, like you explained with the zoning issues or, or what ha- other help that you're giving these guys. And so it's natural, I think, to get involved in all these deals. And I, I, so I've always thought this about that time period. Of course, this is uh, hindsight 2020, right? But what was it as you look back and have had, you know, we got some distance between us and that now, of course, here we are in the middle of a, a whole, whole new issue. But when you look back at that time period, what were the red flags? I mean, do you, do you ever say to yourself, you know what, 2006 or 2007, the truth is, man, I had a gut feeling about, you know, maybe not, I don't know that anybody could have predicted the depth of what happened, you know, 2008, 2009. But where do you sit on that, playing hindsight, trying to kind of learn from that experience? What, what were the red flags? Well, the red flags that I should have seen waving, um, that I didn't see because we had never heard of, um, you know, the phrase non-performing loan. We'd never heard the phrase um, mark to market. We'd never heard the phrase real estate being underwater. We'd never considered the possibility that you couldn't sell your real estate for more than you owed on it. That is, Those were all foreign Right. Unbelievable, inconceivable concepts we, in those days. We accepted all so that. I didn't as truth. have, I did not have many red flags that I could look at. But I did, I did. I was backing a builder in Tampa, Florida. They, he was building um, luxury homes, not not the condo race. I saw that. I, I didn't, you know, the beach condo race. I didn't want any part of that. But good, solid people in Tampa, Florida, building million dollar homes. Um, in nice neighborhoods, and I had a builder down there, and I was backing him with my um, construction lending ability up here in Georgia. Well, um, I had a phenomenal relationship with a big bank, and I, I went down there and to see the projects in Tampa, and I asked the bank that I had a you know eight million dollar relationship with already if they would back me on you know signing construction loans to build these you know, um, million-dollar homes for executives in very nice 
uh, up and coming development in Florida. And that bank turned me down for that construction loan. And instead of being wise and saying, you know, there's a reason this big bank is mm. turning me down for this construction loan, my ego wouldn't let it go. Mm. My ego said, I'll show you who can get the loan to do this, and I'll show you how much money I'm going to make on this loan, on this uh, project. And so I went to other banks and who, who were smaller and not as wise, and they, as it turns out, they backed me. And, and early on, we did very, very well, but at the end, we got stuck holding a number of lots and um, one or two houses, and we lost a lot of money on them. So the red flag, to answer your question, would have been, when the bank don't think it's a good idea, maybe it's not a good idea. Maybe your ego needs to be put in the back seat, and maybe they know more than you know you you do about it. So there wasn't a lot of red flags, but there there were a few. That's kind of like getting turned down for the life insurance policy <laughs> after the blood test, <laughs> right? There may be some risk here. Yeah, this guy. This we won't do a five year policy for this guy. <laughs> this is not good news. Not you can't get the life insurance policy because the life insurance company thinks you're going to die. That's right. So. That's right. You know, I was real green back then, and not as arrogant as you were back then, uh, Mark. So, <laughs> uh, what? <well>, I, <laughs> I had no experience and no. I didn't have any money either, so I, I couldn't tell anybody what I thought. But what I did think, I thought, why are all these people buying these houses that have no money? I thought this. Yeah. This. This is a false economy we're creating. I'm going to jump on board. I'm going to make money on it, but this is kind of weird. Why is everybody doing this with no money? Um, well, you know, that was a red flag that we saw. Uh, to answer Travis's question, another red flag that we saw, Joe, was that we had people coming down here to Henry County from New York oh, yeah. buying second homes with no money down, adjustable interest rates. And I remember some days we would do like 10 and 12 closings and my one of my associate attorneys and I would sit down at the end of the day and we would talk about these crazy deals where we know one guy was a, a trash collector in, in New York City. He made about sixty-five or $70,000. And his, we knew when we closed the deal that his interest rate was going to jump in about two years. And then how's he going to make that payment? And guess what? You know, sanitation workers don't get bonuses. Um, mm -hmm. And so how's he going to, have that increased payment on a second home in Georgia, how's that going to work? And we found out that it doesn't work. I mean, you know, that, that was a red flag. I mean, that's right. he, uh, you know, they raised the interest rate, they raised the payment, the guy couldn't pay it, and, you know, he lost the house. And by that point in time, the house wasn't, not only was it not worth the value of the loan, it was worth about 40 or 50% less than the loan value. And that's mm -hmm. just when the slaughter mm -hmm. began. You know, it, it one of the, one of the things that uh, that I'm that I'm hearing from you is that ultimately speaking, y you as a business person are the one that is going to be most responsible for protecting you, because the the next guy, the the lender who's writing that loan to the buyer that shouldn't have been buying, well, they made their fee and it's federally insured, so. Once that thing actually hit the close button, they're out. And they made their money. As long as they put that file together appropriately, they're out. And they don't, they don't much care or concern about whether that buyer can perform afterwards. So it's just so interesting as you look at, you know, the real estate industry, how if, if we're not paying attention to logic, 
about what how things actually work in the world, it will come back and bite us eventually. Um, and it doesn't mean that you can't make money. You can time things. Like my financial guy says, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, there's guys that time the market and make money in the stock market, but, you know, if we're going to get in the business, business of timing things, then uh, that's pretty dangerous business. Well, there are people, and this is what all so many people are sold on in real estate deals and investing is, you know, here they prop up the one deal that somebody made a ton of money on. You know, and it's just, it's just, just not representative of a lot of what goes on. There's a lot of losses that occur, too. Now, there's a lot of people that made money yep. as well. But, uh, you, you know, you got to have some margin in your life and you got to have some cash reserves. You got to be prepared for, for things that can go wrong or it can take you out or just, it's, it's too risky. Um, let's do Yeah. Wise, wise businessman once told me, he said, you know, Mark, he says, everything looks good when you're going into it. <laughs> but you know, once you're into it, 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 you know, then you see the ugly side of things. And so you got to be really careful about things you get into. And, you know, you don't really learn learn it by just listening to somebody like that. You learn it by actually going Unfo- through it. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah. now we're we're here yeah. on the big truths of small business to help, hopefully, give some nuggets to the up and coming business guy or even the business guy is about to make a big decision to just to just pause and, and think 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 about what you're about to do. Travis, what you got? Well, I'm man. I'm, right now, I'm super depressed. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm feeling like I need to sell everything, move in the tent. So take me through, get me out of the recession and take me through the restart. What? So I understand, you know, 2008 was probably when you got hit hardest Yeah. And started trying to figure things out. When, when did you kind of, well, you know, let's, let's pick up from there. How'd you get to the other side of that? It was gradual. It was survival. It was taking uh, litigation cases. Thank God as an attorney, I can do other things than, you know, close real estate loans or be in real estate. So I had to relearn. I had to learn how to do other type of um, work like, you know, um, litigation, um, how to, you know, be a good litigator. I had to go back and get some trial skills so I could go to court representing people. I had to learn about personal injury law. I had a lot of calls asking if I you know, could do personal injury work. And so I had to relearn and, and it really, did, it was really good for me because everything was so easy for me for such a long period of time. I didn't have to learn anything new. And the recession caused me to have to get out there and learn new things, which I did. And, and over the years it has grown and grown. Um, you know, I started my own practice in 2011 and that I guess was nine years ago. And, um, you know, we're, we're really at a, at a really good place in terms of happiness, low, you know, low amount of stress and a great team that I work with and enjoying the types of uh, litigation matters that I, that I do. But over the years, you know, if I had to do it over again, I, I mean, I, I could tell you four or five things of, of, you know, what you need to do to protect yourself in a small business environment. Um, one of those things was to have, you know, Joe says a little bit of cash. I said, you know, you got to have some significant <laughs> cash reserves because, you know, everybody, when you see someone who is desperate for money, you see somebody that, you know, the guy that cut your grass, he's got to be paid right now, or the plumber who fixed your, you know, you know your, your water filter in, in the sink of your kitchen and he, and he gives you an invoice, he wants to be paid right that minute. He can't, he can't wait to bill you and you send in a check. That tells you that these people are desperate for cash and they're miserable and they're and, and anybody 
low on cash, desperate for cash. Um, they're miserable people. So if you have cash reserves, it has a really good soothing, calm toll on your psyche, and it allows you time to be able to make good, prudent decisions. So I would say don't get involved in things unless you know there's a good, good amount of cash reserves available to, to weather. Even if it takes a longer period of time for you to get in a deal or to start a business, um, that cash is king. Because, I'm, I'm going to you know, underscore that, Mark, because yeah, th- this is something that that I think that anybody that's been around a block long enough realizes is that when you create some margin in your life over time, meaning you 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 spend eighty percent of what you make, and that twenty percent is going over here, then then. For every year that goes by that you do that, your decision-making abilities begin to improve in the future. You're making better and more prudent decisions. Um, you're not making uh, uh, irrational decisions out of, out of desperation. You're able right. to take advantage of opportunities that come your way because you're, you're sitting in the right place for it. You can think clearly right. about it. You don't, you're not doing a get rich quick scheme because you're, you're, you're just desperate. So, I mean, I just think that is a, a core learning here, but I want to underscore that. Keep yeah. going. Well, I would say that the cash is king uh, model. And then the other thing is that I never realized until after I went through the recession was the fact that you really ought to limit your liability from the very first start, from the very first day. And what I mean by that is I signed a lot of joint and personal liability loans with other people. Mm-hmm. So you may have three or four or five people go in on a deal and sign a million-dollar promissory note. Well, if those other people cannot pay, then and you can, you're the guy who gets stuck paying the whole thing. Yeah, that's your, your so, million dollars instead of 200000 yeah. That's your million now, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, why not negotiate with the banks and say, hey, we'll each sign a note for $200,000, but I'm not going to take on the responsibility of somebody who can't pay. Or you have, you just associate with people who you absolutely know have the ability to pay, um, but not, you know, not take it all on yourself. So limit your liabilities from, from up, you know, up front. That's good. That's good stuff there. You know, because people, you know, when the chips are down, everybody is going to um, have to run to protect themselves and their own families. And you know, the, the, you know, there's there when the, when the times get hard, you know, the friendships fade away when it, when when the food is running off the island, and that's understandable, <laughs> you know. And uh, so that was one thing. One other thing is that um, you know you got to put your own business first and foremost, and if it's going to survive. Um, that's another thing that I learned when, when everything was crashing around me, I had 12 people that was just on my column, my responsibility factor in the law firm. And every time I had to let someone go, I I would go and get them another job somewhere, um, so that they would have a place to land. I don't know why I felt obligated or responsible Mm. to do that, but it wasn't in my nature to let someone go. I spent my entire career hiring people, trying to find the right people, trying to get the, the best quality people. The idea that I couldn't afford to pay one of my employees, that was a very depressing, devastating blow to my ego and my, mm-hmm. my whole psychological makeup. And so what I learned after that is that it's not my responsibility 
to provide for everybody. I had a I had a law partner tell me, he said, Mark, you're not Santa Claus. You can't do everything for everybody. You got to get rid of that mentality. And if you got to let somebody go, you got to take the emotions out of it, put your business first, and move on to save your business. Because if you don't save your business, you're not going to be able to save yourself. So other people will have to take care of themselves. And that's that was, you know, you got to take emotions out of it a lot of times. Uh, yeah, if, if you have, can afford the luxury of doing that, then I say, you know, be the best person you can be. But don't don't drown. Don't let yourself drown trying to save one of your employees because you're right. both going to be under. And, and, and I'm going to piggyback on that because we've been having this dialogue quite a bit here in the COVID-19 crisis because there's a lot of unknowns here across America, across America with small business, even big business, but small businesses sitting in, in, in their living rooms at night going, what if, what if, what if, what if my business declines 20%, 30%, 40%, what do I do? And, 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 and yeah. in the context of what you're saying is, is if we don't put ultimately the business first, which ultimately supports us. If we're not healthy as an individual business owner, then certainly the business is not healthy. We can say that as a, as a matter of fact. If, yeah. if the small business is not positioning itself to be healthy, then nobody working for the business and certainly the clients that you're serving are not getting properly served. So it, it does work in that order. If, if, if you're not healthy, then, then the business is not healthy. And the business is not healthy, nor are the, 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 the employees or the clients. And, and, I, and, you, and I know your nature is to, is to take care of all the folks that are, that are out there. I have similar that nature. And, and we, 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 you know, it's okay. To, like I said, it's okay to do that. I almost think I separate that now. I go, okay, if I'm going to give over here, that's a personal gift or loan over here that I can afford to do, but it cannot be anything that's going to have a negative impact on the business because that hurts the other employees that are still there. So that's a, that's a prudent, right, that's right. A prudent point. Well, and sometimes it's easier like to telling know. you. To, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say like being on that airplane, they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't save my kid if I'm, if I'm passed out. That's exactly out. what you're talking about. Exactly. Now, did, didn't, didn't you go to first class first on that flight to San Diego? Wasn't that you? No, because the closing attorney fees were so low that I barely got on the airplane. There, I'm not sure we have time for that whole story, but that, that, that was a great trip whereby very short, short to point here, I thought Mark was taking me as a client to California and doing a bunch of closings in person on his dime. I was thinking – Wow, this guy's investing in this relation. This is so cool. Like this guy, I'm now in the elite now. This guy's taking me out. I found out on the 18 closing statements there was a $375 fee for travel. Wow. Oh yeah, I paid it. I mean, I was whining. we were whining and dining on my. Just bill. having a good time. You had a great time, man. <laughs> Oh my he, goodness! He, he, he taught just, me. He taught me something about business back then, and I actually felt good about it. I paid for it and felt good about it at the end. He just didn't know how big of a deal <laughs> you, know, you I've were. I've never seen anybody hold a grudge like Watkins. I tell you, this, this <laughs> guy won't give it up. I know, Mark. I've only heard the story ten times here. So no, 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 I'm no, telling no, no. you. I'm telling you. No, seriously, I actually felt. I was like, this. This is pretty. This is ingenious. I got to learn this strategy. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was learning the big truths of small business. He was teaching um, you the big that's truths. That's right. That's right. You got to pay for that stuff, and I did. Well, Joe, I want to mention one thing that is a is a big big deal to a small business before we we let it go because I think it's so important. Right. I see this in my practice a lot. I have a lot of people who want to sell their businesses, yeah, and they 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 make a lot of money out of them, and they and they um, they think the business is very very valuable. Um, but when we get down into it, soon as you find out that the business is highly concentrated with mm. one or two major customers, mm. then that blows the value of the business because nobody's going to buy the business if if you have two have a concentration of a customer base mm -hmm. um like you know the 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 guy who has a company that he gets all of his business from lowe's or home depot um yeah. and that's 90 percent of his business right, well right. you can't sell that business no you know and and being on a bank board for many years we get criticized by the the, the regulators if we have too many loans associated with one particular borrower or if yes. we have too many loans associated in the building business or the development business and so because if one downturn you know if you lose that one customer or that one chunk of business you know your business is wiped out so for any small business owner it's tempting to say hey i got the opportunity to go to lowe's and be their main supplier well then they wind up owning you they could put you down and um, you, you're, the value, you may make good money now, but the value you're not going to build the value of your business. Have you have you seen that in what you do? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, you're 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 sort of telling a part of my story here, as you know, where in the property management business, cause sort of prior to yes, I rent, I had sixteen hundred properties under management, and only four hundred of those were not one client. So 1,200 of those properties were one client. Now, good news is I'm pretty self-aware. I knew that was the case. I knew that I was had a risky endeavor in terms of what I was building, and it was just a, a risk I was going to take to try to ride that wave. But, but the thought, I had many people ask me, hey, why, I mean, you're set up well here. Why don't you sell this thing? I got nothing to sell. That's why I, I it, it, you know, in, yeah. in, in hindsight, it, I didn't realize how much effort it was going to take to build a model to support that type of, of business. And wow, I wish I had hit the gas pedal on the other growth patterns of, of the industry. So I could have taken advantage of that infrastructure and it just didn't, you know, hindsight's always 2020, but I think that's a, a really important point. In fact, that brings me to um, a thought that I had because I was having a conversation with one of your very close relationships yesterday. And we were actually talking about that specifically about, have you been overseeing my wife again? <laughs> <laughs> no, this was, this was a, this is another close relationship. And, um, oh, okay. And, uh, we were having a conversation yesterday and, and he was going in and, and talking. I'm not going to tell you what he's talking about because I'll, I'll reveal who he is. Cause you're going to try to guess who he is. But I called him and said, look, we're having a podcast with Mark Britton tomorrow and I need you to give me a question to ask Mark tomorrow. And so here's the question. And maybe you can you, you answer the question first and you tell me who you think it is. How excited do you get when you get a phone call coming in, okay, new business, and it's for a slip and fall 
rather than a personal, I'm sorry, it's a slip and fall personal injury case rather than a call for an update of a will. Basically, what he's saying (laughs) is, what's the difference in your level of excitement between a call for an an update on a will versus a personal injury case? That was the question. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Uh, well, the money, you know, the the uh, personal injury to lawyers, and that's why you see so many of these um, horrible, horrible lawyers on television advertising that just embarrasses the profession and embarrasses the rest of us. There's a lot of money in personal injury, to be honest, and um, slip and fall personal injury because, you know, if it's clear liability and there's an insurance policy on the other side, you know you're going to get paid. It's just a matter of how much. And so, you know, how much you get paid is based on, you know, how badly someone is hurt, how many medical bills they had, how their life was changed. And so, you know, it's all, it's not a matter of how much time you put into it as much as it is how much medical bills there are and how severely someone was hurt, how much the lawyer gets paid. And that's why you see all this horrible groveling on on television with these these law firms that, um, you know, are begging for your business, and it's just a disgrace. But anyway, yeah, there's money in personal injury. That's probably my brother-in-law you talked to. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Man. Alan Greer it is. That's sharp right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's I always good. play it up with him because he, he likes stories like that, you know. <laughs> Well, I, that that leads me. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was. Uh, we were joking, and this is kind of sad. I mean, this this is really shows how low my character rating actually is. He was in my <laughs> office one day, and I and I had just taken his personal injury case, and and I said, and how do you like that? There were two other people in the car. <laughs> oh man! And I didn't mean it. I mean, I just joking around with him. I'm just pulling his chain. You know, we we have this sick sense of humor that we share together. You oh know, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, what would uh, what would you reckon along those lines, man? Perfect segue. Small business owners. I mean, we we got you on the line. We got to get free advice, man. Legal advice. What's the best tip you could give the small business owner to stay uh, out of court with you? To stay out of court. Yeah. Just be honest and seek good counsel. Um, don't try to take advantage of other people. Don't try to you know be you know. Don't be the guy trying to stick somebody in the back. You know what I mean? Um, the people I know in my life who experience the most success are the ones who stay honest and right. They surround themselves with good, competent, honest legal counsel and professionals, CPAs, um, and they they want to do right. And I know that sounds kind of corny and cheesy, but as I as I look back over my career, you know, the people who tried to cheat and get away with it and the people who try to take advantage of others, things never turn out real well for them. And, mm. you know, um, there's, there's a lot of examples of that in this very, in this very community. And um, the, the, the right thing to do is uh, always the right thing to do, if you know what I mean. Mark, do you find that in – most legal disagreements where we're going to court and somebody's suing somebody put a percentage on that. I love percentages. What percentage of these cases is where one of the parties is actually not doing the right thing, intentionally not doing the right thing versus the percentage of these, these arguments or these disagreements that are just, they're just miscommunications. They're just, 
they're just somebody's got to pull it together because we can't agree. But what, what 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 percentage there's one of the parties at minimum is actually trying to deceive or do the wrong thing in your opinion? Very low. A lot of a lot of the cases that you see where there's contract disputes, it's it's having to deal with an unforeseen problem that the contract does not necessarily address. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot of the dispute and the parties cannot you know, when you have a problem like that, it usually means somebody's got to pay for something and nobody wants to pay for it. Yeah. And they all they're focused on is, I'm not paying for it. I don't care who is paying for it. Instead of saying, look, the guy on the other side of the contract is just like me. He don't want to pay for it either, and it's not his fault. But if we could come together and resolve it and just realize sometimes there's just situations where we have problems crop up where it's in everybody's best interest just to buy our way out of it. Forget the cheese, get me out of the trap. So, but very rarely, I mean, do you see maybe 20% of the cases where somebody's just refusing to perform because they're stubborn or they don't understand the situation they're in, or they, they think, you know, they're just not going to do it because of principle. And you you see, you know, the people with principle, you know, they, they're, they're going to litigation over principle, but that, that works after about three or four months of billing them attorney's fees. Then they (laughs) decide that maybe principle's not worth paying for. Right, right, right. So my wife had a question for you from your perspective in business. What do you wish people knew or what misconceptions or myths do tip do people typically have as they're seeking legal counsel or asking for legal counsel in any regard? What what what, what would you want people to know? What are the misconceptions or myths? What's the what's the one truth you would give from an attorney's perspective to, 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 to our audience here? Well the one one thing that I would advise everybody is that there's you know, everyone understands that the law is designed based around a sense of fairness. But there are rules of law there that have been in place for, um, you know, hundreds of years. And sometimes when the facts play out against the rules of law that apply, you see unfortunate things happen and occur that you would not ever think could be fair in the long run. Um, But believe it or not, even though it may appear to be unfair in that particular situation, you know, the guiding hand of the law is that has been tried, tested, and proven over the years is, is and should be the paramount concern of everyone. Um, there's, there's always going to be those situations in the law where it appears that somebody got the short end of the stick, somebody, you know, was treated unfairly, some... Um, unfortunate thing happened to someone, but if you look at the facts and you apply the law in a consistent manner, those kind of things are going to happen every once in a while. Right. And so you you can't you got to you know respect what the facts are, respect what the law is, and then let them do what they do best, and that is work together, and just let the result be the result. Um, you know, um, there's a I learned a case in law school that I've just adored over the years it's called shuttlesworth versus birmingham and i loved it because i was in law school in birmingham alabama and the case was about martin luther king um walking uh doing a protest march on easter sunday in birmingham alabama back in the late 50s and early 60s well martin had applied for a permit to do the march the permit was not issued and they did the march anyway 
And so Martin was arrested for doing the march in Birmingham, Alabama on Easter Sunday. Well, you know, my heart tells me that he did the right thing. Do that march mm. on Easter Sunday yeah. without your permit. That My heart tells me that's the right thing that happened. But Martin appealed his conviction of marching without the permit, went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And Chief Justice Warren wrote the opinion upholding his contempt citation. He was in contempt of court for doing that. And in the in the first sentence of the last paragraph of that opinion, I mean, here I'm going to quote it to you. Okay. Respect for the judicial process is a small price to pay for the civilizing hand of the law, which alone can give abiding meaning to constitutional freedom. Mm. And what he was saying, what the chief justice was saying is that, look, we all have to respect the rule of law because if we don't, we live in a world of lawlessness. Right. And even though it, it, it appears grotesque and horrible and, and all this, that, that what happened happened. The contempt citation against Martin King, he went to jail, he didn't have the permit, and it's emotionally a horrible thing to think about. But the reality is is that we all have to respect the law. And if he, if he didn't get his permit, he should have appealed to a higher court for right. that permit. He shouldn't have taken the law into his own hands and done his march. Now, I'm glad he did the march in my heart, in my heart. But as a lawyer, you know, how many times have I said that in court? Respect for the judicial process is a small price to pay for the mm. civilizing end of the law. Mm-hmm. That alone gives us, you know, constitutional freedom. And so that kind of goes to Shanda's question about, you know, people have to have a respect for the law, and as your facts apply to the law, that's going to determine your, you know, your outcome. And sometimes it appears to be unfair, but that's the price we pay for living in the greatest land of the of the world, the United States of America. Wow, that's a uh, that right there was a, a beautiful truth of of the legal system, and and I believe what you're saying is so true. I, in my experience, it's the intent. You know, if you could, if you could learn how to read the intent in the, of the law, you know, sometimes laws laws are written by people, and they're trying to convey something, and it doesn't always get interpreted like it should, or how it was written, or it may not exactly apply in every circumstance. But typically, the intent behind the law was good. It was trying; it's, it's trying to to create order and create process. Right. And so, right. so that that's that's just so beautiful. Uh, I'm glad you, you shared that story and Mark, man, we've had a, uh, a great time with you. I think there's some, a lot of nuggets of truth here that have been revealed and, uh, we just appreciate your time today. Uh, I know the audience wow. absolutely loved you and, uh, Mark, um, <laughs> you, uh, you keep yourself, uh, keep yourself tied up here during COVID-19 and uh, appreciate your time today. It's been awesome. And we're going to finish it here with one of these great songs. And it's right here. We got Joe the truth. Joe and Travis, it's my pleasure. Thank you, buddy. Yes, we sir. got the truth. We got the truth. A small business. We got the truth. We got the truth. We got the big truths of small business. Here comes Shameless. Sponsored by... Yes, I rent. Yes, I rent. Yes, I rent. Property management. Replace good tents and collect your rent. Maintain your properties and account for it. Truth. 
We got the truth. We got the truth. We got the big truth. Small business sponsored by SIREN. Yeah. See you later, Mark. Appreciate you. Thanks, guys.